Hello, my friends, and welcome to Backable. Today, Tim is joined by Chad Willardson, founder and president of Pacific Capital, a wealth management firm in Southern California and author of the book Stress-Free Money. We discuss the lessons Chad learned from his time with Merrill Lynch and how they helped shape the creation of his own client-centric wealth advisory firm. We also talk about people's relationships with money, finances and investing, the important role contribution has played in Chad's life and business, and he also shares some simple tips for those just starting out in their investment journey. Hope you enjoy. We've been talking a little bit about with our community, that whole idea of having a break or periodically almost enforcing a break. Is that something you've been doing sort of your whole life? The last uh, seven or eight years, for sure, intentionally, I have tried to become more intentional on taking time away from work and unplugging. And now it's become an obsessive, um, almost like a challenge. So... (laughs) Has that aligned for when starting your own business? Because we sort of you know, I mean, no, like in the very beginning, I couldn't. I was just grinding. I mean, I, I left the corporate yeah. world. I was at Merrill Lynch for nine years, big global Wall Street investment bank, and built a very steady and growing business there at Merrill Lynch. And in 2011, I left and became an entrepreneur. In the very beginning, I was honestly working 17 to 18 hours a day. Uh, I'd come home sometimes at midnight and I'd be back in the office at 5 a.m. just because I, I had to build it back from the ground up after building a business for nine years for a big corporation. Wow. And the whole goal was to, to really create a company that I would want to be a part of and that my family and friends would want to be a part of, not only as teammates to me, but as clients and just to build something that was more of a client centric business that was, uh, great for lifestyle for myself and for my clients. And so that's something that I've done by design. Yeah, right. And and it's interesting with the pandemic last year, I, I love to read. I read about 150 books a year. It's kind of crazy, but I love to read nonfiction books. And I read a book called The Five-Hour Workday about a surfboard company in San Diego, California, not too far from me. And he basically talked about how they cut their office hours to five hours a day and productivity actually went up and sales went up. And I, I was so fascinated by it that I read it again. I read it a second time. And in our industry in financial services, it's a very work grind culture. You know, everyone's wearing suits and ties. You can see I don't wear suits and ties. <laughs> um, I gave up on that. And it's almost like, how many hours did you work? I got to brag how many hours I was at the office. I was at the office, you know, 90 hours this week. Oh, I'm putting in the grind and I was at the office, this and that. I realized if we can get great results for clients, if we can be there when they need us without destroying ourselves personally and our own personal health, let's give it a shot. So I, I didn't go to five hours because that's almost impossible in our industry, <laughs> but I went from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m. I switched our office hours from 8 a.m. to 3 p.m., Monday through Friday, for all employees. Yeah. And we track our productivity. We track our tasks. We track everything that we do. We're very organized in that manner. And our productivity and our effort and our inputs have significantly increased, though I decreased the hours for work for every single person on our team. It's really interesting. Yeah. It's and, really and I, interesting. It's crazy to me. It's like, 
And I say, look, I want you guys, I want everyone to be really focused when you're here. So put your cell phone away. You know, don't get on Facebook. Mm-hmm. Don't get on social media. Don't be surfing the web. Like, come in and, and get to work, get focused, work hard. And then guess what? You can leave at 3 p.m. and go have a life. You can coach your kids' sports teams. You can go golfing. You can go to the beach. You can, you can have so much personal time back. I just ask you to be all in, fully invested, totally committed during those hours. And yeah. so far, it's worked out. I said, this is an experiment. If our productivity goes down, we'll just go back to our normal hours. You know, and someone was getting here at 7 o'clock and people wouldn't leave till 5 o'clock or 4.30. And our productivity has stayed high. And the experiment is now in its 10th, 10th month. And I don't wow. see us ever going back. There's something really deep around that, isn't there? I think around, particularly for all of us that own companies with, you know, significant amount of employees. Yeah. You've just jogged my memory and you were talking about the, the was it, what was the name of the book so we can take- It's a lesser known book, but it's called The Five-Hour Workday. Five-Hour Workday. Because I remember about 20 years ago reading Ricardo Semler's book, who runs a Brazilian manufacturing, and he's got a couple of TED Talks, but he, he wrote a book called Maverick initially that talks about that balance around, he's this whole idea of people's lifestyle and, and designing the company around that. And he had significant success around that. Then he wrote a secondary book called The Seven Day Weekend, which is a long, I think, started off the thinking of a lot of these types of you know organizational structures and how we look after our people and how much wasted productivity is there just yeah. because there's the time. I had the same experience yeah. working at a property developer, which was everyone was competing to be last at the office yes. and I was never yes. around that. So, I would leave sort of at five o'clock, which I thought was a reasonable nine-hour day because yeah. we'd, we'd yes. start early. And you, you see these guys with families, like, what are you doing here? You're missing your kids growing up. I mean, yep. if, if you reward that, you want to leave the company if it's about longest hours, right? Yeah, it's not, it's not worth it. And so, I found that people have more energy when they know they have a short amount of time. We can get more done if the deadline moves up. Just think about before you go on a holiday, before a vacation. <laughs> it seems like the last day you get all this stuff done, you're super productive so because there's a deadline. And so I found the same thing with my own team is that the deadline is shorter and we just work a lot harder. And we haven't had any issues with clients. We're taking great care of them. Our client referrals are significantly up in the last year. Wow. And so it's it's something that's really been a great and it came from reading a book and trying it out. So I I'm really appreciative of that guy who wrote that book. Amazing. Maybe take me back a couple of steps because you you said you'd worked for Merrill Lynch for a few years and I'd imagine yeah. that culture is completely different, highly competitive, yep. global banking giant. How did you make the transition from that type of environment into becoming an entrepreneur and, and running a business? Because a lot of our listeners particularly have made that type of leap before or, or have owned or run businesses themselves. What did you find the major differences were for you personally in building your own organization after coming out of sort of a very structured environment, I assume. It was very structured. It was a shark tank. Uh, it was very competitive. <laughs> it was like old school Wall Street, just yeah. very, very challenging, very rigid. You better have your suit jacket and tie on. You better, you know, sit up straight. It was it was just very corporate. You'd yeah. walk into the office and you just felt kind of that pressure, that stuffiness that big corporate feel. And the bureaucracy got so significant that to me, it got in the way of personal relationships between us and clients. Wow. And and I got in the business because I love people and I love to help people. I love the goals, planning and the, the personal relationships. And so as that got more kind of blocked 
by the business and the restrictions and regulations and things that were they really didn't want you to develop relationships. Sure. The bureaucracy got so big in the corporation, it was like, I can't do this. This is not why I came here. For me, it's relationships first and the profits will follow. And for the big banks, it's just profits, profits, profits. We don't care about relationships. Like it may not be the best thing for the clients, but this is what we want you guys to push out this month. And I just said, you know what? This is not what I'm here for. So even if I have to take two steps back, I've got to figure something else out because I'm not going to last here. So in 2011, on 11, 11, 11, actually, <laughs> I uh, superstitiously, yes, a little <laughs> luck there, I left and started Pacific Capital and greatest decision ever in my career. But I think the opportunity to be creative and to rethink things allowed me to really build and design the business around what I think people need and want. And when you're a massive organization with tens of thousands of employees and uh, shareholders and things like that, you can't... It's like moving the Titanic. You know, you can't really make quick decisions. And for us, it's like, hey, there's a new software program out that helps clients in their investment strategy. Let's give it a go. Let's see how it works. And we could do that as a nimble, as a nimble and forward-thinking company. And so also putting the right people in place. I think that's as people leave corporations and start their own business, being able to add the, the right people and put them in the right seats and have total autonomy on those decisions. That's a major game changer. I mean, that gives you a big level up. The biggest the reason I left though is to become a fiduciary. And I don't know if your listeners know the difference between a broker and a fiduciary, but it's a major difference. A fiduciary giving financial advice is legally obligated to put your interests, your best interests first at all times, even if it costs them money. And so less than 5% of financial advisors in the United States are fiduciaries. 95% are not, which means 95% have incentives to sell stuff and earn commissions. And, and, you know, if you felt pressured by someone kind of trying to push a deal on you or sell you something, it's because they're not a fiduciary. Like I don't have that anymore. Everything is transparent, flat rate, flat cost. There's, there's no hidden games, you know. So it's, yeah. it just gives us that more, puts us on the same side of the table as a client. And yeah. the level of trust and relationship gets even stronger. So that was a choice that you knew you were going to make in the transition from Merrill, that you wanted to become a fiduciary advisor? Yes. Because when you're working at a big bank or a big insurance company, you're not a fiduciary yep. by the nature of where you're working. So it's just a different structure. So becoming independent, I don't have strings attached. You know, There's no one yelling in my ear, whispering, you got to do these this many sales, this you know, push this or push that. that. That doesn't happen anymore. So we're completely independent and objective and clients trust our advice and that makes a big difference. As I said, for many of our listeners, they, they go through an interesting transition. So a lot of the guys here and the people that we know, and, and particularly we've got a similar sort of client base, as I mentioned, through our performance consultancy, they are entrepreneurs that are growing an asset being their business. Right. And probably in my observation, one of the things that is neglected probably a little too long is the reinvestment in the business being the right thing to do at the early stages, but thinking of the business as the asset they're going to sell and retire, which 
I differ in terms of risk management where I think at a certain stage of your business, you need to start drawing some of the profits out and make sure that you're financially protected because right. business is business, right? right? In terms of business owners and entrepreneurs you work with and people that are beginning their financial journey now, it might be beginning later. Mm-hmm. In terms of a, a general philosophy, and we'll talk about your book in a minute, but as a philosophy around the way you see money and the way that you should be considering that for maybe you or your family, how would you approach advisory at the start, not obviously specific investments, but just as a mindset of how we should think about money management as entrepreneurs and people building businesses? A lot of people ask me, uh, entrepreneurs, a lot of people ask me, like, do I have enough or do I make enough to really start doing some financial planning? They always want to know, like, am I there yet or should I wait a little bit? And my genuine answer to that question is, it's like asking a nutritionist and a physical trainer, like, is it time for me to get healthier or should I wait before I get healthier? You know, should I start exercising more today and eat healthier or should I just wait 10 years? The first thing you have to do is really get a plan together. You have to establish goals. It's like if you have a business and they're engaging your company, TK, and they're looking for consulting, you have to help them clarify where they want to go. They have to have a destination. They have to have some goals. And that, there's no difference in their personal and business financial life. They need to have goals before they even know what kind of decisions they can make. And so that's, that's one of the main points at the very beginning of my book. It's like, if you don't have a clear path forward, you don't know where to go, then it's, no one's going to be able to help you. You're just going to be making decisions by whatever the, whichever direction the wind is blowing. That's what you're going to end up doing. So you've got to start treating yourself like a business, your life and your family in the sense that I need to keep track of some things and I need to know where I am and where I want to go in the future because that's the only way you're going to make progress. Yeah, I I agree with you totally. I mean, it's no one ever sort of lucks their way into (laughs) great results, do they? You might have a few lucky instances, but the long-term compounding effect is going to kill you, right? (laughs) It's just not going to be lucky the whole time. Tell me a little bit. Obviously, the book's a great achievement. So, congratulations, by the way. I mean, I think anyone who's been able to (laughs) produce something like that. But was that part of your education process for prospects and clients coming in that you wanted to share sort of a philosophy of, hey, obviously something they can take and and get to know you a little bit better, but the way you approach? Was that the idea behind the book? It's a good question. It's not like I always wanted to write a book, but I did have a lot of clients say, yeah, I, I think I get a lot of outreach on LinkedIn and people are always asking for, hey, can you send me the podcast you've been on or what are so what would you do in this situation? And it just I have so many stories from the last 20 years that it was like, how can I put them in a package and share them, but only like really have to do it once and just make it right? You know what I mean? So Yeah, totally. So I wanted to gather the best insights and lessons and stories that could help people get closer to financial freedom. And, and that was really my goals because I, I don't like to see people so stressed out about their financial life. People are intimidated. They're overwhelmed. They're stressed out. They're wondering if they're okay or if they have enough. And so it was like, I want to help people wherever they are, whether they've got 100,000 or 100 million. I want to take them from wherever they are and take them to a greater, a greater place, both mentally and financially. And so that was really the goal of the book. Certainly, it has reached more people than I expected. Uh, I'll tell you this quick story, but we got on some bestseller list. It was an it was an email blast globally, top five books for personal finance and wealth management. 
and they sent it out and they had a link to buy the King, the Kindle version, which was like 99 cents. And we got an incoming email from someone in Guatemala. And I was like, well, for sure, that's probably spam. You know, <laughs> I don't have people in Guatemala trying to contact my company. Anyways, yeah. it turns out it's a guy that owns tons of uh, businesses and um, very successful, very wealthy in Guatemala, has more than $40 million of his business and real estate and other things like that. Read the book on Kindle, bought the book, physical copies, sent it to his adult children in the US. And now, as of a month ago, became a significant client for Pacific Capital. It's incredible. Because, because he read the Kindle book from a newsletter. He read it in English, his second language. And it's just stuff like that where like, I never could have imagined you, you combine Zoom yeah. technology adaption, you know, adoption with the book. And it's like the world is flat. You know, the, the opportunities are endless. <laughs> it's actually a great story. It's, it's quite incredible. And I think particularly with, you know, you being an entrepreneurial focused guy, me being the same, it's, it's these one percenters, the things that pay off these sort of not higher risk strategies, but the things you do that you sort of could easily not write a book. You could easily not right. send an e-newsletter. You could easily not. But when they hit every so often, it's a real game changer, isn't it? It's a real shot in it the arm. It is. Yeah, I, I couldn't have imagined it. I mean, most people, they say, well, I want to, like two years ago, I want to do business with someone who's really close in geography to me. And here we built enough trust over Zoom with a gentleman in Guatemala. And now he's a significant client and we're working with him and his CPA and his assistants and we're getting things uh, you know, organized for him. And two years ago, that never would have been possible. Tell me, if I was starting out and I had 20, 25 years of, I want to get this right in my life in terms around my financial planning and, and getting my money and my assets working for me. If I wanted to be a top performer, I'm not talking about the volume of money, but if I wanted to be a top performer, I said, I really want to get this part right in my life. Where should I start if I just didn't want to be average? I wanted to do everything you said and I wanted to start trying to behave as though the best money managers would. What are the sort of things that I would need to start considering or might need to change in my philosophy around money in terms of wanting to get top performance or the returns that great performers achieve? I would say the abundance mindset, first of all. You've got to have an abundance mindset approach to money. And you've got to be a very steady and calm, patient, long-term investor. You've got to set up disciplined habits. And I believe automated habits as much as possible. I recommend people have a weekly transfer from their bank account to their investment account. Even if you don't get paid weekly. I believe the compounding effect of putting money from idle cash at the bank into working investments every single week, I believe it's mentally good for you. I believe it also takes advantage of buying investment declines and it's good for the compound interest effect of it. But the clients who are most successful, even if they're starting young and they don't have lots of money, is setting up a weekly habit to where that money just continually... You're continually putting a little bit of extra coal on that fire and you're stoking the fire and you get a bonus or you get a raise or you get a... You win a big deal, you put that in the fire. You know, And every week, you've got more stuff going in there. And then you look back. We just had a client leave our office uh, probably 30 minutes before the podcast. And we persuaded them to be really disciplined in their habits and set up a lot of automated things for them a year and a half ago. 
and the growth that they've had because of that. The husband was sitting on the couch and he was like, I'm so glad you guys talked us into restructuring what we were doing with our, our business and personal finances because we never would have done it. And they did it throughout the declines in the pandemic. And now, you know, they made over 30% growth on their stocks with us. And it was like a huge year. And they're looking back like we almost didn't do it, you know? <laughs> and so it's just, it's just about really being disciplined and thinking long term and not getting scared away when the markets drop. It's really interesting. I might share a story with you as well that my wife and I run our, our business group. And back a decade ago, when we didn't have a lot to our names that we were building our businesses and we were, we're doing all the things that entrepreneurial people do, which is, you know, you're working tons, you're, that's yeah. your own focus, you're reinvesting. But we sort of put a rule in place a couple of years in that we could probably do this forever. We need to change our habits. So, we just decided that 50% of all our earnings would go into investment. And wow. if we couldn't eat, then we would find a way to eat, right? Like that sounds dramatic, but you, mm-hmm. you find a way to, to, to balance it. Now, a couple of those, you know, you go through six, 12 months where it's a tough period, but that's become a habit of ours now that we just work on a percentage that 50% direct debit goes into an investment account and it needs to work for us. Now, a few years, that was tough. As it started to compound, you started to grow the amount coming in. It, it's been a very much a personal game changer for us because it's obviously becomes a significant amount, but you don't look at it as it, it's just a feeling. It's not our money. It's money yeah. that's going to work for us. And it, right. I couldn't agree with you more. It, it's been a, such a game changer in the way we approach investment because it also de-risks feeling it's should I grab more of my money as opposed mm-hmm. to it's been allocated. That's a completely different mindset. Correct. You, if you don't tell your money where to go, it will tell you where to go. <laughs> yes. I and like so, by, by doing that, you're, you're telling 50% of that money saying, you're going to go work for me now because I brought you here. Now, you're going to go work <laughs> for me. A post I did on LinkedIn this last week, I said, cash is trash because the governments are printing trillions of dollars around the world and interest rates are basically zero or almost zero. Yeah. You are not incentivized to have money doing nothing. And so when people sit around and they say, well, I'm going to wait, we'll see what happens. I'm like, would you hire people in your business? Have them go sit on the couch and say, don't work for me yet. I want you to just sit there until I feel ready to have you start working. Of course you wouldn't. So it's the same thing with your money, like what you're doing with your 50%. Get your money immediately working for you and think long term. Yeah, it's I, I couldn't agree. And for everyone who's listening out there and you, you start stalking Chad and his business, it is so important to understand that because I believe entrepreneurs get used to earning and making money and it's so hard that they then hold on to it so tightly because they don't want to lose it. And that's essentially, you're only playing half the game. You yes. have to work out how that money can work harder than you do for you. And when it becomes a significant amount, it does become exciting. Not so exciting at the start where it might be, who cares, a small percentage, but that compounding effect through the discipline that you're speaking about through years of compounding interest. I mean, it just adds up, right? Absolutely. Uh, no doubt. Tell me the thing that I was really excited to get you on to Backable was some of the stuff you're doing outside finance. It's great to hear about the things you're doing, but you've been a guy, it seems your whole career that's been around contribution, giving back and being involved in things that are quite remarkable. Could you talk a little bit about how did you get started in this whole philosophy of, of contribution first? I have to give credit to my parents and grandparents who taught me a lot about giving uh, and service. I was in the Boy Scouts program. I, we did, we just did service was just part of what we did. And I was always taught uh, where much is given, much is required. And so it was never just about me accumulating millions of dollars and 
holding it to myself and being all about some competition of numbers. It was what impact and difference can I make? And so I feel like the more that I give, the more fulfilled I feel. And it makes more of a difference if I can see the impact and my kids can see the impact. In fact, my next book that's coming out this year is called Smart Not Spoiled. And it's it's about what and how to teach your children about money before they leave the house. And so I'm very excited about that. One of the chapters is about giving. And I share a lot of stories of what we've done as a family and things that we've done to really instill gratitude and instill that impact and contribution um, in our in our own family. And I gathered some stories from clients as well. But I just feel like there's so much good that can be done. And that's something that also motivates me to be more successful. I know that if I did nothing, if I quit and closed all of my businesses and did nothing, my wife and I can, could live a great life and be fine. But I want to make more of an impact and give more of a contribution. And for that, I need to continue to grow and build. And so that's something that definitely motivates me. It's really cool. We, um, years ago, we owned a digital agency and we had a whole lot of young people. And we, we, one of the philosophies of that company was we want to grow young people to be great business leaders. So we tried to fast track their careers and we would spend basically every Friday, they had to come into the office, but they had to work on their personal life goals. And so mm. we, it was a horrible business decision financially because you're losing 20% of productivity over the whole staff, which became right. a significant amount. But we really enjoyed trying to develop young people. And one of the, the exercises we went through is remembering what it's like to be giving because as soon as you start your career and you start going through an area of scarcity as you grow and you, you know, yep. your money's maybe not there. And one of the activities we did was go and give a significant amount of your money to someone because mm. you can and see how you feel. Now, it wasn't mandatory, obviously, because we can't push that and it wasn't, I couldn't give them the money because it wouldn't have the impact. But about 50% of them did and they were young people and they didn't have a lot of money, but they basically took their week's earnings and they spread it around the community just in odd things they saw or wanted to give or they would see someone who needs some money. And the impact that had on those guys, they still, they recognize it as the best money they've ever spent with mm -hmm. that not being the appropriate yeah. way to describe yeah. it. But it was, it was the understanding that you remember once you start giving when you feel you can't, right. but we're playing a much different game here. For this sure. is about abundance. This is about attracting energy. And funnily enough, yes. those 50% were the people that kept getting opportunities, that kept, you know, and that's something that from the metaphysical, I'm sure we can't track, but something magical happens when you, you have a mindset of contribution, isn't it? I believe it. Absolutely. I believe it. One of my positions, I'm an elected official. Um, so I got elected this for the second term, second four-year term just a few months ago in the election here in the US. And uh, when I ran the first time, I committed to the whole couple hundred thousand voters. I said, if I win, I'm going to donate 100% of my salary and earnings to a local charity. So I found a charity that serves women and children in need who can't afford the healthcare services when they're pregnant or having a baby, raising a baby and things like that. And I go, I've gone with my kids and my wife and we visited the, the facility and the, the volunteer nurses and stuff. And so 100% of what I've earned in my elected position goes there. And to me, that feels cool. Like yeah, just to brilliant. be able to do something like that. And we go to the annual banquet and hear the stories of people, mothers who've been impacted by the gifts and the donations of everyone else. And, you know, just things like that make life more meaningful. It's not just go to work 
earn my money and then go home and then come back to work, earn my money and go home. Like, let's make an impact. We're going to do, we're going to do big things and, and make the world a better place for sure. Chad, you are, you obviously are doing big things. And uh, I mean, it's just incredibly great stories. Tell me why are you different? And you're probably humble enough to think I'm not, but you are significantly different, particularly to most financial advisors I've met, by the way, yeah. <laughs> not just the shirt. But what is it that that makes you this sort of the mindset around this? I mean, what's the next decade look for you? Because you're obviously a top performer and you've had a career of in the sort of top performance areas. Just to get into a big bank like that, you need to be great. Just to yeah. run a business like this, you need to be doing something right. What, what do you think it is about you that makes you so dogged to, to get this stuff? Because it doesn't feel forced. No, it's not forced. I feel like once I could fully be myself, you know, then I could impact more people. And I felt like I was held back and restricted in the corporate suit environment. And so my vision just continues to expand about who I can help serve, whether that's my team members and employees, clients, obviously my children, extended family, community. It's like, what can I do that I care about? And some of the causes I care about, like Teaching children and young people about how to be good with their money so they're well prepared for adulthood. And so that's why I'm like, I have to write this next book because I feel like it's going to impact a lot of families. I don't want money to be a taboo subject at the dinner table. So I'm going to give you actual ideas of how to talk about stuff that most families maybe have a hard time talking about because we pass on the money blueprint that our parents gave us. If they were stressed about money, we're probably going to feel stressed. If they were anxious or feeling scarcity, if mom and dad argue about money, you might think money's a negative thing. You know, if you watch some even Disney movies as a kid where the 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 rich guy is really evil, it's the bad guy because he has he's greedy, has lots of money. Like I want to change that. I want people to see that as it's not the bad guy who has money. You know, money is a magnifier. If you're a great giving, generous person, then having more money, you're only going to be able to do more good. If you're a greedy, jerk, arrogant person, yes, having more money is just going to bring that out. But I, I don't believe that money in itself makes you who you are. So hopefully that answers it. Absolutely. I think you'd you'd have a better perspective of what makes me different than other financial advisors. I'm not really rubbing shoulders with my peers <laughs> as much. Well, I think, and, I, and I, I don't want to use the term uh, new age, but our private company, our management consultancy is called Philodomo, which is a Greek word, which means philo means friend and timo means to honor. And the whole idea is you've got an obligation as a good human to honor your friends and your friends yeah. being your community and your people. So, if all you do in life is leave people better off with the interaction you've had with them, you're doing good. And I think this whole idea around wealth creation and money, I couldn't agree with you more because I see so many people that have poor it's not a money mindset. They look at this thing as it's, it is a taboo subject or it is something that's evil. Where I'm, for my clients, even if you make a ton of money and you don't do anything with it to serve, even by creating the economic impact, even being able to pay your taxes, even being able to contribute, that's fine. You've done something. You don't have to go and give it away. You don't have to. I don't care what you do. That's not my judgment. But the reality is, is the more you can contribute as someone who earns and creates and creates right. opportunities for others. Right. You're still got a level of contribution. That shouldn't be something you're nervous about. You don't want to see people, you're driving a sports car. To me, I look at someone who drives a sports car and go, I wonder how they've contributed to the community because at worst, they've paid more taxes. At worst, mm -hmm. well, <laughs> yeah, there'll be a lot of people now that are writing going, that's not necessarily the case. But <laughs> a majority, the, the 99% do. It's a yeah. contribution, isn't it? And it's, there should be, there's no shame around looking at money as a vehicle to 
give your family experiences, contribute to it's, the community. It's, and it's a means to an end and there's no shame around it. As long as you keep relations, in my opinion, if you keep relationships above money, if like my family and my faith in God is more important to me than money, and it always will be. And that's how I prioritize my life. I'm not going to ever put money above those things that matter most. And therefore, I believe that my I can be level-headed and make decisions about money that aren't tainted, that aren't twisted by greed. You know, if you're a giver, if you're giving and you're contributing and you're caring with the success that you have, then I don't think you're ever going to be swallowed up in your own ego as well. Like one thing in the last two years, at least four of my employees bought bought their first homes here in Southern California. And it's expensive to live in Southern California. That gets me really excited. Like I love seeing the success of people on my team. It's something that gets me up in the morning and it's like, hey, I'm, I'm creating opportunities for not only our clients, but the people who work here. And I think that's something that every business owner can relate to, seeing their people get more successful. Again, I couldn't agree more. And I think it's not always big changes that need to be made, right? For someone who may not have bought their first home or are still struggling to to find abundance in their wealth creation. It's some habits right at the start, isn't it? And allowing sure. time to compound that as we go along. Because I, I agree, a lot of people want to, when they decide they want more money, they want to change it straight away. But it's not a process like that. You have to respect the process, I assume, that you've got a similar philosophy. I agree. Yes, absolutely. Chad, it's been really great to chat and I I appreciate your time and and everything you're doing. For all our listeners, check out the links below. You can see Chad's book and his upcoming book, as well as the links to for all our US listeners. But now hearing that you've got clients in Guatemala, we're really you're a global business now. So for anyone For sure. For sure. Switzerland, (laughs) Netherlands, and Guatemala. So So anyone who's interested in um, speaking to Chad or people in his business, they're okay just to Get in touch. Absolutely. Yeah. If you go to our website, pacificcapital.com, you can schedule a free goals conversation. And frankly, like even if you just have a few financial questions and we can help you at no cost, I'd be happy to do that for any of the listeners. Chad, I appreciate your time and uh, I know our our listeners will equally so, but thanks again for um, coming on to Backbull. It's been great to get to know you a little better and having a chat. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Well, that's the show for this week. Thanks for listening. And of course, if you head on over to backable.ai, you can access all the downloadables we've put together. Now, if you want to stay up to date with all things Backable and Philodomo, then make sure to join our Facebook group and follow us on one or all of the platforms you can find in the show description below. As always, if you have enjoyed this week's podcast, please don't forget to like, subscribe and leave a review. That's all from us for now. Have a great week and we look forward to speaking with you next week. Bye.